So, Austin, I got five words for you. All right, dude, I'm ready. Where are they? Okay, Candyman. Okay. Candyman. Okay. Candyman. Okay. Candyman. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't. Candyman. Oh, shit. I'm not going to sleep tonight. Well, if if I don't finish this podcast, you'll know exactly <laughs> what happened to me. I'm looking into a mirror right now as well, just to, just to complete the effect. Uh, so, yeah. So, this week, we're doing our Halloween special. It's Candyman and Scream. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Hey, welcome to I Dig This Movie. I'm Keir Seward, an independent filmmaker and photographer, as well as a guy who lives in a neighborhood that is far too creepy looking to get trick-or-treaters. And I'm Austin Hayden-Smith, and I really miss Halloween from when I was back home living in the suburbs when you could just walk around with a suitcase, not a suitcase, a pillowcase, not a suitcase, a pillowcase, and just, just womp on that candy. Oh. Oh. Like, I'm getting so nostalgic for, like, trick-or-treating. And the thing is, like, the thing is, like I got robbed, man, because we didn't move to the States till I was 10, so I only had, like, a couple of prime mm. trick-or-treating years, man. Like, I didn't really get to trick-or-treat that much. Yeah, but at least you got something. Your, your fellow UK peeps, they don't understand. To them, Halloween is all about fancy dress and going out and drinking and getting fucked up. And I'm like, yeah, sure, as you get older, I can understand that. But you don't understand the childhood joys of competing to get your candies. Oh my god! And I was like, it's it's like I remember being like shocked at just how much candy you could get as well. Like yeah. I'm, cause you know you see like the kids in the movies and they got like their little pails. Uh, but like, fuck if I no. would be able to fit all of that candy in those little jack o' lantern pails. Okay. That's why you needed a goddamn pillowcase. Cause I lived in the suburbs and goddamn were people generous with that candy. They were. And I remember when I was a little boy, I had one of those little jack o' lantern things, right? But then I remember when. When I graduated, because I remember, you know, when you're like seven or eight and you see like the 10, 12 year olds walking around with their pillowcases. I remember when I graduated to the point where I was like, I'm going to carry a pillowcase this year. I thought I was so cool. <laughs> what was your what was your uh, what, was, what was your ceiling? When did you stop trick or treating? Uh, Gosh, I remember distinctively I was in junior high. My mom made a gorilla costume for me. And that's adorable. Then This is the night that I met my first girlfriend. Her name was Rebecca Tonan. And, uh, I mean, you know, like my first, like, like proper, I guess you would call her a girlfriend, you know, cause I always had like little crushes when I was growing up, but that didn't count. So I was 12 or 13 and that was my last one. Yeah, see, 13 was my last one as well, because, like, yeah. literally, it was because we went trick-or-treating a bunch of us, and people just kind of started looking at us funny, and being <laughs> like, are you a little bit old to be trick-or-treating? Yeah. And that was, like, that point where you're kind of like, when people start, like, begrudgingly giving you candy, that's probably when you know you've probably passed it. Yeah. Yeah, I think because you're not cute anymore. Because that's why people give you candy because they come to the door and they're like, "Oh, you're adorable." And then you're you're 13 and you're not cute. You they see you as a nuisance. You, yeah, you are a nuisance probably because you're probably getting candy and like you've got silly string or whatever. You're you're trying to be a little bit of a deviant, a little bit of an ass. So, I understand. Yeah. Well, and well, here's here's the question too. Like, how long did your did your candy last? Oh, ooh, I don't even remember. I mean, it. I'll be honest, dude. I got a fucking sweet tooth. Like I'm. I'm a skinny dude, but I can throw down some candy. So it wouldn't have lasted long, I'll tell you that. <laughs> See, like, 
I remember like you'd gorge it like that night, but my mother had like limits and she'd be like, okay, that's done. You getting like, you can have a little bit portioned over time. Right, right. And like, I remember it would last like at least like two or three weeks where you get to that point where you were at the end of the shit in the bag that you didn't really like that much, but it was like, it was free candy still. So you're still eating it even though you weren't that into it. Of course, man. Now, I don't know if it was the same thing in New Mexico, but in Southern California, we had these scares of people that were supposedly injecting poison into the candies. So it'd be all over the news before Halloween night. So on Halloween night, what would happen is your parents would have you dump all of your candy onto the floor and you would look for packaging that 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 was potentially tampered with so had it been opened or anything like that because i guess you know i I don't know if this was an urban legend or not but dude yeah this is that's 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 we got to make a movie about this it's not an urban legend that's actually like (laughs) that's like not true there was never like any cases of kids being poisoned by trick-or-treating candy like there's no record of that whatsoever it didn't stop this weird scare people got into it didn't stop our parents i I used to dump my candy out every year and my mom would look through it or we would look through it and then did you ever see freaks and geeks like uh, there's that there's the trick-or-treating episode where the mom makes like all of these cookies for the kids and none of the kids will will take them because all the parents are like you can't give kids things that aren't wrapped you (laughs) could have put like a razor blade in them or something like that and the mom's just sitting there going why would i put a razor blade and cookies yeah like what would i get out of that i know like no i think i i think i read there's only two cases of kids ever being poisoned by halloween candy and in both of those cases it was by their own families oh, jesus because that's it like like people aren't like out there like hey what weird way can i concoct to kill children it's just like you know the the world is not necessarily as i'm gonna put cyanide things. in their their twix candy yeah. Anyway, if you've enjoyed this tangent, you can join also on our other podcast, the Trick or Treating podcast, <laughs> where just like all year round, each week we talk about trick or treating. Hello. Hello. Who is this? Tell me your name, I'll tell you mine. Uh, I don't think so. What's that noise? Popcorn. You making popcorn? Well, I'm getting ready to watch a video. Really? What? I'll do some scary movie like scary movies. Uh-huh. You never told me your name. Why do you want to know my name? So I want to know who I'm looking at. Someone is playing a deadly game. It all began with a scream over 911. Someone who's seen one too many scary movies. Now, he's taken his love of fear. Hello? Hello, Sydney. One step too far. Like scary movies. What's the point? They're all the same. Some stupid killer stalking some big-breasted girl who can't act. She's always running up the stairs when she should be going out the front door. It's insulting. There are certain rules that one must abide by in order to successfully survive a scary movie. Number one, you can never have sex. Never, ever, ever, under any circumstances, say I'll be right back. Because you won't be back. Get another beer. You want one? Yeah, sure. I'll be right back. All right, so Scream is a 1996 slasher film uh, written by Kevin Williamson, directed by Wes Craven, and it stars... Well, this it's one of those interesting films. If you haven't seen this film, then I don't know where you've been fucking living. But um, it's like probably the quintessential '90s horror film. As Kier said yeah, last it week, it stars the '90s. It was what it stars. Yeah, this 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 film basically started the. Uh, 
kind of like a resurgent slasher craze or something like that. And as Kier said, it ruined horror films in the sense that everyone was trying to then parody the success and the the beats and the plot points of Scream. Um, but it was a very sort of like it's a postmodern horror film in that it is a meta commentary on horror films uh, as it's acting out the very things that it's commenting that are the sort of rules of a horror genre. But it's a slasher film about this uh, caped man with a white mask or man or men um, that uh, are going around this tiny little town and cutting up high schoolers and then actually even other people beyond just high schoolers. And it stars Nev Campbell, who I forgot how much I love her. She's actually, I think she's phenomenal as an actor. And I forgot how much I really appreciate her. Um, Apparently, she's in the most recent seasons of House of Cards, but uh, I haven't been watching. And apparently now, since all this shit has come out with Kevin Spacey, um, it's ending anyway. And I have no desire to watch, but... Nev Campbell's supposed to be good in it, I guess. I don't know. Nev Campbell, um, it's got Skeet Ulrich in it, who, or Ulrich, uh, who I kind of forgot again, but I thought he was actually pretty talented. Um, I don't know what happened to his career, really. It's got a young Rose McGowan, Matthew Lillard, of course, Courtney Cox, and David Arquette. That's where their romance blossomed originally. That's how, that's how she got the Arquette in her name. Oh, it, it cut out for a second. No, w- yeah, 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 it's cool. I said that's how she got the Arquette in her name. That is right. That is right. So she can thank Wes Craven for um, her hyphenated name and then her, and then she div- lost her, the her subsequent divorce. He has <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the period in her career where she had an Arquette in her that's name. That's right. Um, and then the thing that was so interesting about this film, I remember when it came out, was this is maybe one of the only films that I can really think of where it, ha- it, it paid so much attention to bam up a young ingenue only to have her killed off in the very opening scene. So much so that Drew Barrymore is actually on the cover in most of the posters. She was in the promotional material and was billed as kind of being a star in this film. And yet, within the first 10 minutes, she dies. Which was what something. What kind of that, does a Janet Lee in Psycho? It's like it's it it pulls the rug out from under. But that's you. like halfway through almost. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is like. Not you don't even get halfway with with Drew Barrymore. You get literally the opening scene, and you think, oh, they're gonna set it up, and then she's gonna get away, and then she's gonna be a protagonist, and her and Nev Campbell are gonna team up with all their little high school friends. Nah, it they fuck it up, man. It doesn't happen. So, um, yeah, and then it turns out that uh, so Nev Campbell is actually the the lead actor, and her mother was murdered a year before. So this is the one year anniversary of her mother's murder. And um, she had been the decisive witness in her mother's murder trial to to uh, put away this guy by the name of Cotton Weary, I think was his last name. And so he gets put away, but then there's some questions about whether or not he actually was the killer. And uh, Courtney Cox plays this annoying tabloid investigative journalist who's writing a book about the Nev Campbell's mother's murder. And... Um, yeah, and so things kind of ensue from there. The killings start to happen again, so then people start to question whether or not this is something random or does it have any sort of relation to the murders the previous year. And, of course, it turns out that it does. And it turns out that Nev Campbell, her boyfriend, is one of the killers. And it turns out they're actually two killers. And they also killed her mom. And it's just a really kind of smart, slick, totally 90s horror film, meta horror film. See – it's really, really interesting because I have like a kind of long history with Scream because Scream is probably and I'm for people my age, it's probably not an unusual thing to say. But like Scream is like one of my first horror films. Yeah. So like it got played a lot on like 
Fox and stuff like that. Like they'd sure. show it like around Halloween and you saw like a censored version of it. And I would almost always catch it like after the movie had started. So usually I'd catch it like an hour into it. So in a weird way, I was sort of watching it this time and I was kind of thinking like, I don't know what it would have been like to watch this film entirely fresh. Like sitting there right. going like, I have no idea who the killer is. Ooh, is that guy the killer? Oh, cause you, you, you sort of start oh. to see how like they try to build and they try to, you know, build in all these red herrings. Ooh, is Dewey the killer? Is the um, principal? Is, is, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is like, is the principal the killer? You know, is, and, and the way that they sort of like keep sort of, uh, fucking with you about whether, um, whether the boyfriend is or isn't the killer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and, you know, it's all really, really clever the way it sort of plays with your expectations. And I think it really helped that I had just recently seen Happy Death Day, which is a film where the plot twist as to who the killer is is so stupid and badly done that it's kind of laughable. Right. (laughs) Um, And here it actually makes a really good amount of sense and i i you know it was interesting again because i i've seen this film so many times it was one of those ones too that i think for some reason my grandparents had like taped on like off of like film four and was on a vhs tape in my grandparents house okay and so i ended up watching it a whole bunch then as well and mm. it was kind of my first introduction a lot to like on screen like horror violence mm. and stuff like that which i mean i have to say i don't think the violence in this film is that extreme no. but it's um but it, it was it was interesting. I mean, if you've seen a Rob Zombie it, film, this is fucking nothing. Yeah. So. <laughs> well, and and also the funny thing is the thing that weirdly I've got like a thousand thoughts and they're all sort of coming out at once. But um, weirdly I was sort of thinking that this film is essentially to horror. It's like the Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid of horror. It's like that film that comes out sort of just post the genre it's commenting on and is part of the genre while also commenting on the genre. Because basically Mm. the slasher film was kind of dead at this point. Right. And the film kind of rekindles the slasher genre, but does so in a way where essentially ever, all of them become like self-aware, um, smarty pants. Exactly. It's kind of toned down, um, uh, slasher film. Yeah. It's like the, the anti-Western, right. Or the post-Western. Um, it's post-modern. It is. Every, every slasher film becomes post-modern. Yeah. And you have to, you've lost your innocence. It's hard to just make a straight slasher film now, unless you have some sort of element of self-awareness. And they all became PG-13, and they all starred <laughs> right. actors from, like, TV shows. Right. Like, they're all from, like, like Dawson's Creek or some other kind of, like, teen show of some sort. Right, like the new one um, that just came out, the Amityville one with Bella Thorne that got panned. Um, yeah, like but I mean, like... It's not, a sla- like, it's not a slasher film, it's an Amityville kind of but supernatural... But I'm actually specifically talking about what happened in the late 90s oh, right. up until just about the early 2000s, because early 2000s actually saw a huge resurgence of really sort of brutal, strong horror films that were quite... like. Cabin Fever is kind of one of the early ones that kind of kicks off a big resurgence. And that's when you get things like the Saw franchise comes in, Mm. you know, torture porn starts becoming popularized. And I think, again, it's a little bit because I think horror is very reactive to whatever's going on within the culture at the time. Mm. You know, 90s is a sort of post uh, the Cold War pre 9-11 kind of era where everything's kind of becomes very sardonic and self-aware and then as soon in a sort of post 9-11 world you see that kind of sense of brutality start to come in Mm. like people often talk about how the texas chainsaw massacre is almost a kind of comment on vietnam in the sense that it's a film about young people going to a foreign place where they get butchered um Mm. 
you know, so and I and I think I think there is an element to that. I think, you know, a lot of the really brutal films that come out of the 70s, you feel like they're coming out of a time of unrest and disorder, whereas the 90s wasn't really a time of unrest and disorder, no. you know, so it's it, it feels like, you know, and. In the same way that you look at a film like American Beauty and you say, like, that sort of film could never be made now because it's a film that's all about how empty being affluent and, um, you know, sort of and, and not having a lot of problems is, um, you know, something like, you know, the, the 90s horror film is almost a comment on we don't actually live in horrifying times. So let's comment on the genre that says we are. Yeah, Um Although something that's interesting is that I noticed in this film what they what they talked about was um, they focused a lot on terms like post-traumatic stress disorder and on these ideas of how in this day and age, you, you, there's no reason really, but just people can be psychotic just because. And you started seeing that in the 80s and the 90s in particular as, as our understanding of uh, – of psychology and psychiatric medicine and psychiatric care. Somebody's been watching Mindhunter. <laughs> but yeah, for real though, is that we started to think about people in, in different ways. And in the 90s in particular, this idea of these new killers, how they don't have a purpose and they don't have a motive and how people are just kind of fucking crazy and they can just snap was something that was a big fear, I think, that people had. And this film kind of preys on that a little bit, although of course it does give a tiny little motive at the end as well. Well, it's interesting, too, how I think um, this film kind of, I mean, because with the original set of kind of the, the horror genre sort of starting maybe with, say, Bob Clark's Black Christmas in the mid-70s, and then the really famous, you know, kickoff would be John Carpenter's Halloween in 78, mm. 77, 78. Um, then, you know, you got Friday the 13th, you know, Stranger Calls, Prom Night, all that sort of stuff, you know, coming into the 80s. And it's coming at just this time where you've been the culture has been saturated for about a decade of this sort of this popularization of this idea of um, serial killers. And, you know, you have like Manson in the 60s. Then you have, mm. you know, like prominent people like Ted Bundy, Son of Sam. You know, there's there's this this idea of these kind of scary people in society who snap and, you know, just sort of go on killing sprees um, becomes this real like prominent idea within American society. And that's kind of what these, this wave of horror films comes out of. So, but the interesting thing is, as you said, I mean, especially too, if you're watching Mindhunter, then you, you get that vibe of the fact that how in late seventies, people didn't really have like the understanding of psychology or the vocabulary to really properly express that these things so in well, the pe 90s people did but law age uh, law enforcement agencies didn't <laughs> well it wasn't yeah but it wasn't in the popular yeah, culture exactly. i mean the idea of a serial killer was something that became incredibly popularized by the 90s yeah. so when they're talking about it in the 90s it's this kind of self-aware thing and so at that point we have the vocabulary has become almost old hat this idea mm. of oh yeah he had a troubled childhood and that's why he's a serial killer right whereas like you know in Back in the day, it wouldn't have been like, oh, he's a trouble. He's just like, oh, he's a fucking asshole. He's a crazy, evil motherfucker. Right. He's not a. He's not like. He's not a guy who just like has a motive or has some kind of just family issues that made him a crazy motherfucker. But I mean, like, I, I definitely I want to get back into the film because I'm, I'm we're we're talking in in broad strokes at the moment. But I mean, like, I, I think it's really really interesting because this film. 
was part of the kind of 90s wave of just scripts that became like these huge selling points in the 90s. Like I know what you did last about summer. A little bit. Urban legend. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I mean, it's like it's like um, things like um, things like, you know, when Joe Esterhaus was just like selling script ideas for oh. like huge money. Like there was a huge like th- this. This script was huge in Hollywood go- when it was sort oh. of like going around. And it was called uh, originally it was called Scary Movie. <laughs> um, Funny. And yeah, and it caused this huge sort of stir in, um, and uh, I mean, there was some work concerns over the amount of violence in it. And so there was a sense that they wanted the, the violence toned down and everything, but it was like, it was a, it, it was, it was a big deal when they were putting this project together. Hmm. Um, and sort of Wes, when Wes Craven came on board, it was kind of like, well, the, you've got this horror master who's coming in and, uh, he's going to be like taking on this script. that's created this huge kind of stir in Hollywood. Hmm. So it was a kind of, it was, it was a big deal when this, um, when this film was being made. Interesting. Yeah. I, I didn't know that. I mean, I do think it's interesting how you say that, uh, how you kind of talk about this film as sort of being almost, um, like a hinge from, you know, the the tail end of the slasher film's prominence to sort of it not being something that was very prominent in uh, in films being released. Then this film comes and it sort of initiates something else. And then now you have this this shift again after after 9-11. It is interesting to think of this film in a lot of ways as sort of not not the script and kind of the craziness that it caused in Hollywood with like scripts being sold. I mean, Blake Snyder writes about this in um, – and save a cat how he talks about how like he sold like three or four scripts for a million bucks or something ridiculous like that that never even got produced you know um well the the interesting thing well the interesting thing too is this script is it's 1995 that this script gets brought it was basically there was this huge bidding war between paramount universal morgan creek and um miramax eventually was the ones who um bought it and the interesting thing is if you think about it 1995 that puts it the year after Pulp Fiction becomes this huge phenomenon and is the highest grossing independent film of all time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what is Pulp Fiction? Pulp Fiction is a sort of a film about people where characters speak. It's it's a genre film where characters speak in a kind of knowing self-aware way with lots of pop culture references. And it's a kind of self-aware sort of crime film. Mm. And so in many ways, Scary Movie, as it was titled then, is the pulp fiction of horror films. Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting you say that. And I feel like if you look at the filmography of the latter half of the 90s and into the early 2000s, you can kind of see too how it in many ways, it did actually change then the way, I guess probably in the way that pulp fiction has with independent film, it did change the way that you can make a horror film. You know, you have to now, you can't just simply go back and make... um, a, a typical naive, if you will, slasher film. You have to make something that is post-screen. It's almost like this film, in a lot of ways, initiated a sort of shift, a, a real sort of break in the way that horror films are made, at least for a little bit, right? Um, and then so and, it, and- it kind of like a, a branch split, and so things kind of went off into different directions. But this is the sort of node from which that split uh, took off. Well, the reason that this is clever as well is that because this film, um, I mean, the problem with the slasher genre is it's a very limited genre. I mean, the sort of the um, Rosetta Stone would be Halloween. 
Right. But I mean, I, even as a John Carpenter fan, I can't say I'm the world's biggest fan of Halloween. I mean, I, I, I find it fairly dull. Um, and I mean, outside of that, there's not that many great slasher films. I mean, Friday the 13th is a fucking terrible movie and most of the films in the genre are terrible movies i think nightmare on elm street is great but i think that's almost an elevated above what i generally think of as the slasher genre because it has this kind of supernatural uh, bigger supernatural psychological concept to it but i mean you know most films about a guy walking around stalking co-eds with a knife um that's the general setup and they all pretty much follow the same track because in the same way as any kind of uh, genre film, you know, pure genre film, grindhouse kind of that that sort of th- they're there to fulfill very, very basic ideas. And um, one of the one of the big changeovers that we have now is that television is able to give us a lot of things that movies used to kind of be there for. Like if you wanted mm. to see boobs or you wanted to see some violence or you wanted to see some intense shit or you want to see something like, whoa, that's like fucking crazy. You went to the fucking movies because TV wasn't going to do that because there's only four channels. And mo- well, at least in this country, there's only four channels. And like none of them were going to show that shit. Um, so that's where, that's how, that's where you saw a lot of that stuff in these sort of underground grindhouse places. Um, Mm. so, but I mean, now, you know, if you want to see boobs and gore, you can watch watch Game Game of Thrones, Thrones, you know, know, eat, watch Spartacus. It's far more gory than, and, and, and full of like nudity than pretty much any of those films from like the seventies and eighties were, I mean, like, that's the funny thing. A lot of them were actually pretty tame when you actually look at them. Yeah, they you are. Know? But I mean, at the time they were, that was the thing. They were the things that were kind of out there. And now we've kind of outgrown that when you can watch American horror story on FX and it pretty much like goes far beyond what most, what most of those films did. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the interesting thing with this film is that it almost acknowledges that a straight, slasher film is redundant yeah because we've all become self-aware of the tropes and the ideals and generally because they were about essentially giving these very basic excitements um they were these very straightforward puritanical tales a lot of the time they were about the virginal girl who manages to stay pure and this sort of outside force of the evil killer who's essentially espunging all like the the bad kids and that was was basically it you kind of because the whole point was generally with these things is you're almost kind of rooting for the killer so you make almost (laughs) everybody there an asshole except for the nice main girl so you don't mind that the killer's killing them all off right yeah and jamie kennedy uh who makes a I completely forgot that he was in this fucking movie. Did you ever watch his TV show? What was it called? Was it called the Jamie oh, Kennedy Experience? Oh, the Jamie Kennedy Experience? <laughs> yeah. or experiment? Experiment or, yeah. or something, yeah. Anyway, yeah. so he, that's what he does. He, he, he pretty much just straight out lays out those rules. You know, you can't have sex, don't drink and do drugs, and obviously don't say I'll be right back. But yeah, the whole point is, is that it was a moralizing story, that the horror film was doing precisely that. And it was, it was doing so intentionally so. Um, It may not have been aware that it was doing that. It may not have been like, you know, the people that are writing the script saying, ah, we're going to tell these morality tales that if you have sex. But it was kind of just an expression of a certain conservative, traditional, maybe Judeo-Christian ethic that was then on display. And 
was it you that was telling me there was something like what was it in the 50s or the 40s you couldn't show like somebody getting away with bank robbery so yeah that was that was part of the Hayes Coast you couldn't show that crime paid there's something similar in this right it's like you almost you can't show kids who are quote-unquote fornicating and doing drugs and being bad getting away with there had to be a punishment so there's still a conservatism even after the sexual revolution in the 60s and 70s right so in the 70s and 80s in these horror films there's still that conservative especially in the 80s in reagan's america there was a conservative turn right that and you know you've got thatcher in the uk and you've got reagan in america and you've got this turn towards neoliberalism which is then the sort of resurgence of right-wing christian ideals and things like that so there is something interesting that probably underlays what was going on in the slasher genre and scream is basically the capstone that's saying all right we can't make these movies anymore we have lost our innocence so but beyond just kind of talking about the thematic stuff talking about the actual plot of the movie and the acting and stuff like that what do you think what what were your takeaways since you hadn't seen it in a few years it's so weird though because this is a film that i find it so hard to watch in context because it's a film that I I really genuinely think within the film world, there is a pre and a post Scream, you know, (laughs) film industry. Right. Like, I I think Scream had such a huge impact on popular culture that it is just hard. It's it's like The Exorcist. It's hard to watch The Exorcist in context Mm -hmm. anymore. It's hard to think of what it would have been like to watch The Exorcist and not know and just watch it as a film and not know the phenomenon and the jokes and everything around it. Like the problem is too, I've watched scary movie a lot, which is a terrible movie, <laughs> but, and one of the things it does is it parrots scenes from scream constantly all right. the way through it. So it's like, I genuinely had moments where I forgot which things happened in scream and which things <laughs> happened in scary movie. So, yeah. which, which is really weird experience to have. But I actually, the interesting thing is despite all of these problems, I actually, trying to watch it in a bubble i still i really think it's a fantastic movie i do like, i think i i was and i was almost pleasantly surprised at how much i thought it was a fantastic movie and the thing is too like i've seen this film a lot to the point where i do remember an awful lot of the dialogue um but weirdly until this viewing, if you told me in the last five or six years, like, what do you think of Scream? I probably would have said, oh, I think it's all right. I think it's pretty good. You know, mm. it's kind of kind of a clever idea. But it was this was the point where I actually sat down and I thought, like, I'm actually appreciating how well made this film is, like how how good it is. And yeah. there's some there's some odd elements to it, definitely. And we can get into that for sure. But. I think on the face of it, I actually think it's a really fantastic movie. Yeah, I agree. Now, the only thing I was worried about, and I and I thought about this even within the first two to three minutes of the film starting to play, was would I still be able to enjoy it knowing all of the twists? Yeah. And When was the last time you'd seen it? Um, as a matter of fact, it, it wasn't as as long ago as I had thought because I started watching it. I was like, oh my God, this is really fresh. So it's still within the last 10 years, definitely within mm-hmm. the last 10 years, um, which actually, interestingly enough, Candyman for me, I'd seen it within the last like two or three years, but um, we'll get into that later. But um, yeah, definitely within the last 10 years, maybe even within the last six years, five or six years. But I was wondering if it would diminish my viewing experience, not kind of questioning and guessing who is the killer. And in a way, I didn't have the surprise factor, but what I did have is similar to you alluded to uh, at the beginning, is I was able to see how they did it 
to someone if they were innocent. Yeah. And then that, that was kind of – it was enjoyable. Yeah, I felt the same way. It was yeah. kind of the first time I've ever like I felt like I'd ever watched it being able to at least surmise what it would have been <laughs> right. like to watch it the first time. Yeah, and that you was know. actually quite enjoyable. Yeah. No, and I actually it's it's like I actually think it's the first time I really appreciated just how clever the twist of the of the two killers is. Mhm. Yeah, well, I remember when I first watched it cuz you're thinking the whole time they they're they're feeding it to you that it's Billy, right? They're feeding yeah. it to you, and you almost like you distrust it because they hit you so hard yeah. with it. You're like, like it's you're too like, obvious. It's like they they, they got to be fucking with me. It can't possibly be him. And then yeah. like the bit where because it's almost like this point where like um they have the thing where uh Jay where Jamie Kennedy does the whole thing of saying like the rules of the horror film and like the last one is obviously never say I'll be right back because you won't be right back. And right. then when Dewey comes to get at uh gail like literally like two minutes later in the film and uh, she says to her cameraman i'll be right back and then dewey's like being like kind of super weird which for years i watched and was mm. just like why is david arquette being like a fucking goofball and shit like that but i realized this time because they're trying to show the make the audience think he might be the killer exactly that whole thing if he's like you're not scared are you and he's like he's he's kind of like he's like oh do you want to go into the woods and investigate this car <laughs> and like you know when i was when i was a kid i just i you know after knowing the knowing the twist for years i thought that was just some sort of weird cutesy thing he was doing but this time i realized that if i didn't know what the twist was i would actually probably at that point be like oh fuck is he the killer yeah and there are a couple other things there is even the day after drew barrymore is killed when nev campbell campbell gets called into the principal's office who is by the way the fawns which is wonderful um but so she's called in the principal's office and dewey's there do enough henry winkler like i would like to see more henry winkler i know i dig him i know Yeah, yeah i know but they do this thing where they linger on david arquette because he's a young officer obviously in this small town and he's asking questions but they linger on him and he gives this weird awkward look and then they start to make it that oh he's the guy that always gets picked on so um he might have the crush on the girls but the girls don't like him so you're thinking oh so he gets his revenge because he's picked on and he's nerdy and there are all these little subtle hints that they give to kind of throw you off the billy scent that way as yeah. well. well so and, and it's like it's like that bit too when he says to him you know mom said that when you when i'm wearing this uniform you got to treat me like a man of law that's right and he's got like this, he does he's kind of giving you some crazy eyes at yeah. that point and yeah, you're yeah. like this could be a dude who could kill some people yeah exactly so i, I really did kind of enjoy it not having the innocence of being a first-time viewer um but yeah I, I thought it was really fantastic i actually really really enjoyed watching it and I, I said it earlier, but, like, I think that Nev Campbell was such a really talented young actor. Like, he, she's got this natural connection, and, and the chemistry between her and Skeet Ulrich was really, it was really nice. I mean, you know me, I, I critique acting probably to to my own detriment because that's a lot of times how I view films. It's just purely through acting a lot of times. But I thought she was really fantastic, actually. I think it's interesting because I wonder if she's one of these actresses that was just guilty of making a few really, really bad choices with some films that tanked and then kind of that was her career kind of done. Because she kind of had, you know, there was that movie Three to Tango, which was that romantic comedy with Matthew Perry where she mistakes him as being gay and then he pretends to be gay. Is that Dermot Mulroney in that one too? And Dermot Mulroney's in it. She's like, Dermot Mulroney's like, 
mistress. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was like, it was the sort of film that I actually remember really liking when I was about 10 or 11, you know, and there's a lot of like bad films that I remember liking at that time period right. that I've watched now. And I'm kind of like, what the fuck was I thinking? And actually another one of that was drowning Mona, which was another film that I liked when I was like 10 or 11. Um, but, Is that one of her know, films? Yeah. Oh, that's I- one of where <laughs> Bette Midler is this kind of, crazy um this crazy woman who gets killed and uh the 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 joke is like who wouldn't want to kill her Uh, um yes you know and danny devito is like the town sheriff and yeah it's it's um and then you know and then she's in like scream 2 and scream 3 both of which are bad but that was kind of like you know that that was her sort of solid franchise thing and then you know and then she just kind of disappeared into a sea of films that I've never really heard of and, you know, probably will never watch. Yeah, and like bit television parts and stuff. I mean, really, obviously I know it's kind of a cliche, but really it was Wild Things that I thought was the sort of, the the, the poorest misstep in her her film choices because... I'm just going to say, I kind of like Wild Things. Yeah. It's... I mean, it's, it's kind of fun. I I mean, I haven't seen it since I was younger because the only reason I saw it was because, oh, there's a threesome scene with her and Denise Richards, you know? And I was like, oh, my God, of course I'm going to see that. So Which, again, like, now it's like, super fuck, tame. you could see that shit on, like, Masters of Sex or something like that. <laughs> like, but, like, in, like, 90, 98, you're like, oh, my God, like, there's this movie with boobs in it. We have to go see that. Well, but that's – and that's precisely it. So she was in Party of Five until, I think, 2000, Right. Which was a great television show. I'm just going to throw this out there. I have never in my entire life watched an episode of Party of Five. Yeah, I mean, it was like, I mean, I don't, I say it's a great television show. I don't know if it's, it's not like the fucking wire or something, but I mean, for what it was like a family drama in the uh, mid nineties, it was very successful and it was a launching pad for certain people like Matthew Fox. It it. gave us a very boring set of actors out of that because you've got, you got, what was it? Josh, was it Josh Wolf? Yeah. Um, uh, I don't know if it's Josh Wolf, but yeah. And the guy that looks like young Tom Cruise. Yeah, who's in like White Squall and he was in Go, and those are the only two films I can think of that he was ever in. Uh, then you have uh, you have Matthew Fox, who I I always loved the bit in Knocked Up when he says, uh, "Hey, do you know what's really interesting about Matthew Fox? Nothing." You know, and <laughs> and Jennifer Love Hewitt, yeah. who again is just like. Yeah, I, I don't know. There's nothing interesting. Yeah, but about see, Jennifer but she, again, she so. But the show was a huge launchpad because Jennifer Love Hewitt was fucking the biggest actor, young actor in Hollywood for about three or four years. You know, so or three or four minutes. Oh yeah, or, or, or three minutes. Um, and by three <laughs> or four years, I'm including production time. So two films worth. Um, <laughs> um, but but I thought that Nev Campbell was 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 really talented. Then she did The Craft, which was like you could tell that she was breaking out of this sort of like safe thing because that was what maybe a year or so before scream or right around scream then you have scream uh, craft was 96 scream was 96 yeah, actually craft and oh. craft and scream came out the same year so so that was kind of cool but then with wild things you could tell that she was trying to completely be like i'm not just a teen actor i'm an adult well and the thing with the craft is she is not the lead of the craft she's like Robert Tunney and Feruza Balk are very much the leads of the craft. She's right. just one of the other girls. She's the other girl who's not the black one. Right. And but the interesting thing was, I think, if if I'm not mistaken, by the time the craft came out, even though the other girls had bigger parts, didn't she have more like more attention was on her because. Yeah. 
Yeah, I think I so think because of Party of Five and I will say too, like I don't know. She also in the craft, she's like the character who's got the most story who's got like storyline where you're most kind of like yeah, I can see why she's really into witchcraft. She's got like these really, really bad scars that she's going through all of this kind of like treatment for. And you're kind of like, fuck, yeah, I could see why she wants some witchcraft. Whereas like, right. you know, Robin, Robin Tunney's got a case of the, you know, she's got the dead mom sads. Fruza box, like white trash. Right. And like and the black girl is getting like racism like thrown at her from like the lamest racist in the world it's like ben stiller's like wife you know uh and and she's uh and she's just like oh i just don't like negroids and you're like this is like so like the lamest written racist ever (laughs) it's like We've just got a person who's racist for the sake of it, just so that the black person has something that they're being persecuted (laughs) by. Yeah. Yeah. So, but I, again, I think that I I really, I thought she was really fantastic in this film. Um, Honestly, in terms of acting, the weakest, and God bless her for her mission that she's on right now to tear down douchebags in Hollywood. But actually, Rose McGowan, I thought, was actually the weakest of the sort of I kind of don't characters. think Rose McGowan's ever been a very good actress, if I'm being honest. I, I, I can't think of anything where I thought she was good. Like, I, I, there's certainly movies that she's fine in, but I've never thought, like, wow, Rose McGowan really blew me away in that movie. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And so you kind of see that in this. Like, she's – obviously, she's not terrible, but she's – um. She's not amazing. She doesn't stand out. But like the people who do stand out, I think Nev Campbell stands out. Courtney Cox is always solid. I, I think I love Matthew Lillard's character so much. See, that's the interesting litmus test in this because I think Matthew Lillard's doing a bit of a Marmite performance in this. Oh, yeah. Because he's over the there top. There are points where you're kind of <laughs> like, dude, you could, you could tone it down slightly. Man. I know, but I love it. I love it. Matthew Lillard's like a weird one, too, because like basically his entire career in the 90s was just being overly wacky guy and you kind of feel like he was trying to get into some kind of i'm like diet jim carrey or like indie jim carrey or something like that because there was like (laughs) this real rubber face thing going on and like big arm movements yeah no he's definitely over the top i mean if i were you know I think if you're like going to an acting school, they wouldn't be like, hey, let's watch all of Matthew Lillard's performances. Let's watch Scooby-Doo and let's uh, take some tips for how to how to how to do on screen naturalism. But, but it feels um, really I weird like when like um, when he shows up in things like uh, uh, fuck, what was it called? The um, the George Clooney film from a couple of years ago, uh, The Descendants. He shows up in, like, The Descendants as, like, Mm. the guy George Clooney's wife was having an affair with. And then he was in, like, Mad Men. And you're kind of like, Matthew Lillard. Matthew Lillard expects me to take him seriously? I know. I know. It always sucks. I I do feel bad when you get, like, these young actors. Like, I feel that way about, like, Ryan Philippe. It's, like, it's hard for me to view him beyond the sort of person that he was in I Know What You Did Last Summer or Cruel Intentions, you know? Like, there are certain what, people like from Rich this... like, douchebag? I, 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 no, it's just... And this is just probably my own barrier, but it's because I had such a familiarity with these actors in, like, the 90s and maybe up to the early 2000s that it's hard for me to view them outside of their teen roles that they did. It's, it's a phenomenon. It's called the Freddie Prince Jr. phenomenon, um, where you cannot view them outside of being a person that existed in the 90s. Yeah, I and I have this. I have this with Matthew Lillard for sure. I I coined that term, by the way. Oh, so, you coined you know, it. Okay. I you know if there's any trademarking or anything <laughs> going on, I want 
I want yeah. some cash. Cool. And then, and then the last thing I want to say in terms of his performances is Skeet Ulrich. Again, I think that he is charming and he is always in the moment. Um, I think that he's actually quite fantastic. Uh, do as, you think like yeah, that's as an, an actor. actor, like yeah, I mean, do you think like the reason that Skeet Ulrich never caught on was some like he was some kind of he was difficult to work with or there was some kind of like why, why do you think like he didn't like become more of a thing uh i actually i think i've heard that that he did that he did burn some bridges i don't know if it's true but i thought i did hear that now i know that he's been steadily working if you look at his filmography it's not like he ever had he had one big uh gap in for films but that's because he was in tv shows he was in jericho yeah, was he doing jericho at the time yeah, he was in jericho and then he was in robot chicken um for some various apparently he's things, in riverdale but... yeah so apparently now he's in riverdale but which it's... is weird i know I, I haven't watched it yet so but um so i i mean it's not like he ever disappeared but i remember there was a film that he did um Chill Factor? Is that the one? Chill Factor with Cuba Gooding Jr. I've seen Chill Factor. Now, I thought that that was going to be – because this is a couple years after Scream now. I thought that that was going to be the film that was going to kind of like maybe launch him into like I'm an action guy now. and Because he looks like a young Johnny Depp and so you're thinking like, oh, this is going to be the film and after this he's going to kind of like take off. Now, I remember thinking that at the time but obviously in my not-so-sophisticated teenage mind. But I remember thinking like, oh, this guy is like going to be the new superstar because he's good-looking and he was in some big films and then it just he kind of yeah, like – he's got that kind of Keanu Reeves look to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I can see that. And then all of a sudden – I don't – I don't know. But you know, you know that film was a huge bomb. Like it cost like <laughs> 70 million and made like 11. It was a oh. disaster. Like we're not even talking like a small bomb. It was a disaster. <laughs> well, that's I why. That, I think that film killed both Ski Ulrich and Cuba Gooding Jr.'s careers as kind of like any idea of them as a bankable actors. Yeah, maybe that maybe that's why he didn't kind of take off into the stratosphere. Like, but it's it's uh, also like uh, by the way too. Have you ever seen? If you watch his performance in As Good as It Gets, it is so peculiar because mm. I think that that I think I think he clearly had more of a character, and it has been cut down massively in the final role, and almost all of his dialogue is dubbed. It is and like Weird. dubbed in a really obvious, odd way. Weird. Um, and not only that, but Jamie Kennedy is also it as good as it gets playing like <laughs> one of like you know skeet uh ulrich's like hustler friends and yeah again you're kind of like there's a whole plot line here that was clearly cut out of the movie <laughs> and it's so weird but it's like the huh. movie just needs to move on and i love as good as it gets so this is not me criticizing as good as it gets but it is a weird part part of that movie yeah no i i don't know um gosh i can't remember and apparently he was in the craft too i don't fucking remember that I kind of remember that. I don't remember him as a thug in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And apparently he's also an extra in Weekend at Bernie's. Oh, uh, which you have not seen yet. Which I still have not seen. Yet. Um, yet. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I, it's it's one of those things. Like, I do think like this film has got the casting right across the board. And I mean, like, I and weirdly, you kind of think that almost nobody in this was probably better in anything else than they were in this film. It mm. kind of like it, it managed to hit everybody just at that right point And they all just were right. Cause I mean, I wouldn't even say, I wouldn't say I think of like Wes Craven as someone who's a particularly great director of actors. Mm. So 
you know, but I think, I mean, I think, you know, I, you know, I, I agree with you. I think, uh, I, I, I think, um, uh, Courtney Cox is absolutely perfect. And like, I really like the bit where she, she just turns to her cameraman and goes, look, I know you're about 50 pounds overweight, but when I tell you to, 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 that we need to go, it means you need to move your fat ass. Yeah. No, you're right. Everyone across the board seems to kind of fit quite well within what they were supposed to do. And maybe that's it. Maybe it was just the writing was right. The time in their career was right. The story was right. Maybe, you know, and then from, from then on. And also it's really tough as an actor, you know, you, you want to play like those serious roles and you want to do something you obviously want to make money to. So it makes sense why someone like a Matthew Lillard is going to go and do the the parts that he's going to do in like Scooby-Doo films and shit like that. Um, it's hard to kind of replicate something where the writing is good, the directing is good, the film is right, the time is right, the cultural moment is right. You're at your sort of uh, – you're at the, the perfect spot to play that character. So I don't know, man. It just kind of seems to tick all of the boxes, and I think it's a great movie. So I got, I got a few things that I want to bring up. Okay. Um, one, one, I just want to also point out that I love that Liev Shriver shows up in just the uh, just the footage as right. the as the killer. So I mean, this must be early on in his career. Oh yeah, well, because um, he comes back in Scream Two, right? To Scream Two, and then he gets killed off at the beginning of Scream Three. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, have you seen the sequels, by the way? I've seen Scream Two. Remind me what happens in Scream Three. Scream Three like goes like super super meta. And it's all about the production of like Stab, which is the Scream oh, knockoff yeah. film that I did, they introduced I, in Scream Two. I did see it. Stab Three is being made, and the the horror franchise is kind of flagging, and they're trying to like figure out a way to revitalize it. And I, the only thing I remember is that there is a bit in it where um, Carrie Fisher plays a woman who looks like Carrie Fisher, who has a bone to pick with Carrie Fisher because she says she slept with George Lucas um, to get the part of Princess Leia. Um, That's great. No, yeah, I did. I saw Scream 3. But it then broadens out this whole weird mythology where it turns out Sydney's mother like wanted to be an actress and there was some kind of weird thing going on Mm. where she went to Hollywood and it gets into this weird overarching conspiracy thing that's really stupid and uh, like scream should just never there should never have been any sequels to scream it is like it it doesn't really make sense for the film to have sequels it's a kind of perfect standalone film yeah um i didn't see scream 4 though scream 4 is awful i I know i I remember almost nothing about it other than emma roberts is in it and she's as bad as emma roberts is in everything she's in um and i just remember it having a fairly stupid. The problem is too is that Scream had this really really clever twist with the idea of being that there's two killers, and yeah. almost no Scream no Scream film since then has ever been able to really come up with a good serviceable reason why there's a killer. Right. Um, they all feel redundant. Like none of them really feel. Well, because like in Scream Two, isn't it that Cotton Weary is getting revenge because he was falsely accused? Is that right? No, Cotton Weary. They try to do the thing. Well, they they try to do the thing again where they like Jerry O'Connell plays the boyfriend, and they keep That's trying right. to set. They keep trying to push really hard that you think it's going to be Jerry O'Connell. They also try to push the idea that it's Cotton Weary. Uh, but then it turns out it's like Timothy Oliphant, who's like a film, who's like a student in, in, 
Nev Campbell's like film class or something, and then or Jamie Kennedy's film class. Somebody's taking a film class, and ski, and and Timothy Oliphant is the is the guy in it who's like super into like film, and he's in cahoots with uh, Billy Loomis's mother. And she, so it's those two working together, and that's who the killer, the killer oh, is. Jeez, I don't remember, but I it's, do remember. It's really fucking stupid. Yeah, and then but I do remember also, I'd seen it. And then also, um, it's it, and then also, um, yeah, the the third one I can't even remember who the killer is. I can't remember who the killer in the fourth one is. I, none of it makes sense. Anyway, <laughs> but the really funny thing is, like, this also the film kicked off a whole aesthetic because everything looked like Scream after that, like including the posters, where every poster afterwards just became these like head these lines of headshots with a kind of like title in the background, right. Yeah, and it's it, so you know where it was like these are the people in the film. You won't know anything more about it than that. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, um, the thing I was going to bring up is these are like the nastiest fucking group of teenagers when you think about it, because they're all so completely like sardonic and like so completely uh, unconnected to everything. Because all they ever do is just end up making fun of the fact that their classmates got butchered, and then like. <laughs> Yeah, because, like, think about it. Like, Drew Barrymore and her boyfriend, they get murdered. And, like, the next day, like, mo- the only one who seems to care is Nev Campbell, who's still, like, really, like, reeling. And even though she seems to really only care because, like, her because mo- it's making her think of her mother's death. But uh, they're just, everybody else is, like, making jokes about, oh, who's the killer? Oh, if it was, like, a film, then it would be this person. And you're kind of like, where's your fucking humanity, people? <laughs> I'm trying to, like, and then uh, they're, like, running through the fucking halls. Yeah, they're, like, running the through with, like, the fake, like, mask. making... Yeah, and yeah. it's. I wonder. And then, and then when would... the principal gets gutted and put off like the post, they're like, "Oh man, we gotta go see this." <laughs> That's right, they do. It's like, uh, these are like the biggest bunch of horrible fucking yeah. teenagers ever, which yeah, is also bad. kind of funny because if you think about it too, this is a pre-Columbine era as well. Yeah, when was Columbine? Ninety-seven. Uh, Ninety-eight, ninety-nine. Okay. Yeah. 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 No, that I know that is interesting. Yeah, they are all pretty fucked up. I, I do remember thinking that when they were sitting there and they're having the house party and the principal is hanging uh, from the goalpost, they're like, "We gotta go see before the cops come and take him down." I was like, "That's really fucked up, man." Um, <laughs> I don't think I would go. I, I will say too, like again, trying to watch this film in a vacuum as well. I, I will say I think like that opening ten minutes, the kind of like uh, the Drew, where they kill off Drew Barrymore. I do think that's pretty fucking flawless i think that's so well done mm. and yeah, even yeah. just like even just like the thing where her parents are coming back and you think like oh she's just about to get there but she can't like she's she can't like cry out and yeah. it's just it, it it's like it's it's tense and it's it's you know and it's it's gory in the right way yeah 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 I, I agree yeah so i i think we're both in agreement scream is great a great movie, movie. Kevin Williamson obviously then went on to write Dawson's Creek. Yeah. As well as a movie called Teaching Mrs. Tingle, which wasn't very good. Um, and uh, a show called, was it uh, the Kevin Bacon show? Um, was it uh, Following the Following, something like oh, that? Oh, yeah, yeah, the Following, I think. Which is also not supposed or to following. be very good. Yeah. So, yeah. That's uh, interesting, though. If, if you think about... The way that he wrote Teenagers in Scream and then the way that he wrote Teenagers in Dawson's Creek, he clearly has a very high opinion of teenagers. Well, maybe not. He has a high opinion of their intellectual he abilities. He has a high opinion of his dialogue coming out of teenagers' mouths. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. 
I mean, I will say, like, because we haven't really talked that much about Wes Craven. And I think Wes Craven is a very, very patchy director. But the thing that I've always said is very interesting about him, I'm not the first to bring this up, obviously, is the fact that he is a guy who managed to pretty much create a touchstone horror film in every decade. Like, 70s, Last House on the Left, you know, uh, 80s, Nightmare on Elm Street, 90s, Scream. Hmm. Has he been doing anything lately? He did something lately, didn't he? He's dead now. Yeah, yeah, no, but what what he what did he do in the two thousands? Did he do anything? Uh, he acted as he start. He's one of these guys who I think kind of cashed in and ended up just um, acting as a producer. Producer, an awful yeah. Lot. Um, okay. he uh, actually Red Eyes, not bad. That's kind of a fun oh, little yeah. thriller. Um, he. I'm trying to. Th- what else did he make? Um, he. Yeah, he made Scream Four. Uh, he made he made this really awful film called My Soul to Take, which was kind of trying to be like another uh, another kind of Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, mm-hmm. He made this really terrible werewolf movie called Cursed, which I think was also written by Kevin Williamson. But like it was one of those films that I think got about a thousand had about a thousand um, redrafts on it. I mean, okay. like the thing is, if you look at his filmography, I mean, he's just a producer solidly across the board. But he was a guy yeah. who like spent a long time in his movie, like str- in his career, like struggling to make ends meet. So like, I think he was pretty happy to just cash in and stick his name yeah. on things an awful lot of the time. Yeah. Might um, as well. Cause I mean, you know, he got fucked on, um, on the, uh, uh, on the rights for Nightmare on Elm Street. Like, he sold that off, like, and, like, basically that movie made a ton off of merchandising, and he never saw any of that. Because basically, wow. at the time, he was just desperate to sell a script, and New and New Line, which was this fledgling company, were the only ones who were taking it, so he was just, like, took whatever deal they'd give him, and, yeah, and they, they fucked him. It's one of the reasons why he's really resentful towards New... He was really resentful towards New Line and, and uh, you know, the sub subsequent Nightmare on Elm Street sequels because the fact they got so fucked over in the original deal. I did not know that. And I think he's, he's, he's a guy who's got a couple of interesting try movies. They're not great, but they're like, um, like the people under the stairs is kind of an interesting try. That movie scared the shit out of me. Um, the serpent in the rainbow is kind of an interesting try, you know, actually Wes Craven's new nightmare is a really interesting film. And kind of is an interesting precursor to Scream in the sense that it's essentially a self-aware Nightmare on Elm Street film. Hmm. When was that? Uh, that was 94. It's so funny that I was 11 years old when that movie came out. And yet I remember seeing trailers for it or something like I haven't seen the movie ever. But I remember hearing about the movie and I remember seeing trailers for the movie it's amazing how that that type of film has left some sort of indelible mark. Have you ever heard of Candyman? And if you look in the mirror and you say his name five times. In cities everywhere. Candyman? They whisper his name. Right. Candyman. It's just a story. Candyman. Candyman. Just a ghost story. Candyman. An entire community starts attributing the daily horrors of their lives to a mythical figure. 
The legend first appeared in 1890. He was attacked, mutilated, and burned to death. Poor Candyman. Helen, a woman died in there. Leave it. Everyone knows he isn't real. That's modern oral folklore. Everyone. Except Helen Lyle. Bernadette! It ain't safe around here. I don't scare too easy. Wanna know about Ruthie Jane? They ain't never gonna catch him. Who? Candyman. Who is that? I came for you. Do I know you? Now, she is about to discover. What's behind the mystery? You're sick. What's behind the legend? Listen, he's under the bed! And most terrifying of all... Come with me. What's behind the mirror? He's here. So I'm still here, which means that uh, this movie lied to us, Austin. Well, remember, Virginia Madsen uh, and the co-star or her her black friend they say it at one point and it candy man doesn't show up for like another 15 or 20 minutes can i can i just say man i had a real thing for virginia madsen in this film like i, she, I still do she was doing it for me man it was, she I, was she's still she's still doing it for me 92 virginia madsen come on girl oh god anyway so uh virginia madison plays helen lyle a chicago graduate student who is researching urban legends she hears about a local legend known as the Candyman. legend claims that the Candyman can be summoned by saying his name five times while facing a mirror whereupon he will murder the summoner with a hook that is jammed into the bloody stump on his right arm she intact she encounters two cleaning ladies who tell her about the murder of a woman named Ruthie Jean, a resident of the notorious Cabrini Green housing project, who they claim was a victim of Candyman. Helen's research turns up 25 of the murders in the area similar to Ruthie Jean's. Later that evening, Helen and her friend Bernadette Walsh, um, skeptical of Candyman's existence, decide they're going to fucking try out this Candyman shit. <laughs> and just for a laugh, because... Fuck it. They don't know they're in a horror movie. They go, yeah, we'll just say Candyman's name into a mirror five times. What's the worst that could fucking happen? Anyway. Hey, you say this with a mocking tone, but did you not stand in front of a mirror as a child and say Bloody Mary? Actually, did I, didn't. Do that? I didn't because I was scared as shit that someone was going to – because I was definitely <laughs> oh. that kid who was kind of like, I don't believe in this shit. But what if? See, I was too, but you did it anyway. No, I didn't you do know? that, I, I, I didn't fuck oh. with that shit. Uh, anyway, <laughs> Helen learns uh, from a professor that uh, Candyman was the son of a slave who became prosperous after developing a system of mass-producing shoes in the Civil War. Uh, he grew up in polite society and became a well-known artist, sought after for his talent in producing portraits. After falling in love and fathering a child with a white woman in 1890, Candyman was set up and l- by a lynch mob and killed and murdered and... Uh, was it he burned to death? I can't remember. But um, anyway, basically, oh no! Well, they they cut off like his limbs, and it's really horrible. And his yeah, his corpse was burned on a pyre, and his ashes were scattered around Cabrini Green. So yes. uh, Helen decides to write her thesis, um, and then goes to Cabrini Green, uh, which is fucking scary as shit. Yeah, it's, it's covered in that really colorful '90s graffiti. You know. 
which is like it, it's it's weird because at the same time like i don't know if you remember in kids shows like they always had like that hey look we've got this colorful graffiti in the background and so it's like there's that little <laughs> right. part of me that feels like the cast of all that is gonna pop out even though it's <laughs> like a really fucking scary place uh but yeah but um basically what she finds there is the uh, that a local gang lord has kind of taken on the moniker of Candyman and sort of spreads fear throughout uh, the housing project. And when she uh, gets caught in the wrong place, he uh, beats her and uh, she gets taken to the hospital, um, which ends up um, in the arrest of this guy posing as Candyman. However, there is actually a real fucking Candyman. Yeah. And in a parking lot, Helen is confronted by the real Candyman, who explains that since Helen has discredited his legend, she must shed innocent blood to perpetrate belief in himself and continue his existence. So Helen blacks out and wakes up to find that she has murdered um, the dog of one of the uh, local residents and also the baby of this resident has disappeared. Um, when the woman attacks her, she stabs her and Helen gets taken to the police station and everyone's like, what the fuck were you doing in this apartment? Why'd you kill the fucking dog? Where's the fucking baby? To which Helen's like, I don't fucking know. So basically what happens is when, uh, when Helen's released from prison, um, she gets confronted by Candyman again, who once again, essentially puts her to sleep and she wakes up to find that. Bernadette has been murdered and it looks like she's fucking done it. So she gets carted off to the loony bin where she realizes that nobody can see Candyman except her. She tries to explain to the doctor and she tries to explain to him by making by talking into a mirror five times because that worked out fine the first time, <laughs> which Candyman appears and murders the fucking doctor. <laughs> And so she escapes the hospital, comes home to find her cheating boyfriend, played by Xander Berkeley, who just, let's face it, man, he tried to crash the president's plane in Air Force One. He was the dude <laughs> that Al Pacino's wife was cheating on him with in Heat. This, If Xander Berkeley is in your film, he's not to be fucking trusted. <laughs> he's a sniveling weasel. He's uh, a bad dude. Um, so basically... All shit's gone. Husband's off with uh, one of his students. Everybody's murdered. Everybody thinks she's, uh, you know, everybody thinks she's crazy. So she goes back to the to confront Candyman, who basically says he wants her to become like the legend, the new legend of Candyman, um, and offers uh, offers a, a, a trade for the baby. He'll return the baby if she'll um if she will become the new candy man at which point she agrees but he reneges on that shit puts the baby in this big burning pile of like wood and furniture and shit that they've sort of amassed outside the like a big bonfire they've amassed outside uh cabrini green helen runs in to save the baby has to fight off candy man comes out having saved the baby, but is like completely fucking burned to death. And, uh, at which point, um, you know, everything, you know, the, uh, the, the film ends with the residents of Cabrini green showing up to her funeral, throwing Candyman's hook into her grave. 
And then Helen, and then we end with this big mural of Helen where in the sort of uh, the, the area, which is this kind of big, almost uh, kind of monument. We got, it's almost like this weird hidden like church to Candyman in Cabrini Green. But now there's this big mural of Helen like burning to death. And Xander Berkeley, cheating fucking husband, he's like in the bathroom. He's like, oh, I'm so upset. Oh, Helen, 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 Helen. And then Helen shows up. She's got Candyman's fucking hook and she chops his ass down. That's right, she does. She's Candyman now! Was Candyman ever anything else? Like, was there ever, like, a real Candyman? Or was it always a sort of expression or manifestation of her own sort of violent urges? No, 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 I think think Candyman was a real thing. You do think so? Yeah, no, I, I, I don't think, like, I don't think it's being coy with that. I think Candyman is totally real because i think what this film is interested in is it's interested in the idea of myth so to in order for these films themes to work to me there has to be a candy man otherwise it doesn't make any sense unless you understand that myth is something that humans tell in order to kind of explain their own existence so she embodies the myth because she'd heard about the myth and then she sort of becomes the sort of lead character in but- the myth. But no, but to me, this isn't about Helen's internal mental process. It's about her function within the overall mythologizing of this, of, 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 of Candyman, you know? And yeah. I, and I think, and, it, and, it, and it's a performative. She, yeah. she creates it in her enactment of it because she heard about it. Yeah. But there still sense? has to be a Candyman for her to be researching and studying in order for that to happen. There just has to be a legend of the Candyman. There doesn't have to be an actual Candyman. There just has to be the legend of what the Candyman well, does. I'm, I'm just going to say, I, I I, think if you try and create this this sort of reading of this film where Candyman is just some weird manifestation in her mind um, and she was crazy the whole time, then I think that's really boring. And I think that's actually like a really terrible uh, – I think that's a really terrible reading of this film. Yeah, not, not that it was uh, just – that she's crazy the whole time, but that she's sort of, that the myth has always existed and that it came to life. It, it, it was actualized. So it existed in a virtual sense, but then it was actualized in her enactment of the Candyman myth. So the myth itself had always existed well, and people were always murdered, but they were only murdered in the perpetuation of the myth but, insofar as they enacted and performed the myth. But at the same time, to me, the thing that's really rich about this film is the idea of America's legacy of racism and the divide between white and black and the idea that the this white woman essentially um, gets brought down and re um, and reimagined now as this figure that was previously this demonized black character. Hmm. Yeah, it was interesting. I haven't seen this movie in uh, the last couple of years, we'll say. But before that, I mean, I, I, I mean, I haven't really paid attention to the themes on it. And it was this time that I actually did start to notice the interesting racial commentary and racial tensions of this film that I didn't think existed in previous viewings of the film. Maybe it was just because I was not as intellectually developed or maybe I just wasn't paying attention. Who knows? But it does kind of slap you in the face with some pretty strong themes that I think are quite interesting. You know, uh, socioeconomic things, um, racial themes, gender themes. It's it's actually a pretty kind of radical film. Um it, it, with with thinking about like identity politics, but it's also it's really really interesting too how it sets up this real dynamic of this idea of 
the two sides of the coin and this idea of the affluent versus the haves versus the have nots. And the idea right. that she is essentially in a building that is the mirror of Cabrini Green, but it's occupied by affluent people. So she says right. that the rooms are an exact copy because they mm. were essentially built by the same housing developers. It's just and theirs yeah. were in a sort of affluent neighborhood and were given and were sort of um, bought and used by sort of like affluent white people, whereas theirs fell into disrepair because they were sort of thrown away and sort of, uh, you know, and ended up being occupied by poor black people. So this idea of how and, and I, I think it's really interesting you see all of these aerial shots and there's this real idea of the sort of physical divide in the city and this idea of like that she's very much going from one area to the other and the ge- the way it sort of establishes this idea of geography and and this sort of very physical divide not only in race but in terms of geography in terms of uh in, in, in terms of the socioeconomic elements of it you know, mm. and and you feel this real sense of danger when she goes to Cabrini Green that she is an outsider and she really and she's really not supposed to be there. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, absolutely. Um, again, that was kind of one of the things that was so interesting about watching this film was paying attention to those themes, which for some reason I think when you watch a horror film, you don't really at least not in all horror films, not in a lot of like the big horror films. And to me, this was one of those big 90s horror films that was just like really scary. So I kind of just presumed that it was going to be a bit more superficial. But really, it actually has kind of a lot of depth in its themes that uh, I guess I was ignorant of. I just going to sound like a sort of mean thing to say, but this is like this is a proper movie. This isn't just like a slasher movie. This isn't. Yeah. And the interesting thing is that this film's had like, I think, three sequels to it. And yep. again, it's a film that really shouldn't be sequelized because the end no. point of it doesn't lend itself to the idea of Candyman coming back. The kind of the point of it is that Helen has become the new Candyman. So except Candyman shouldn't if, really uh, exist anymore. Exactly. Know? Except on the reading that I'm talking about where the myth of Candyman lives on. Which allows for a bunch of really terrible horror sequels, Austin. So you're just <laughs> further proving my fucking point. Anyway. <laughs> point is that i think actually and and i think that's it i think this is a really clever kind of standalone concept and i think and i i one of the things that i think is uh i I think one of the things that so often is the problem with horror films i don't think they stick the landing very well i think the third act of a great Mm. horror film is really hard to pull off because it's all about intrigue and build and so when you have that cathartic final reveal or that kind of final moment uh, a lot of times it feels really kind of underwhelming i mean even say a a film that i love like it follows it follows as a weak third act you know Mm. um because a lot of times it feels kind of i mean you you set up this unstoppable force and a lot of times if the person just manages to kind of go arbitrarily have some sort of deus ex machina that allows them to beat this arbitrary this 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 unstoppable force it feels very arbitrary you know and it's one of the things that again i don't like about it follows it feels very uh, that's how they beat it like right yeah yeah, yeah. but Candyman. But the genius of Candyman is that she doesn't beat him. That's she why. That's why. Him. That's why it works. She becomes him. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, I agree. I think uh, I don't think it's mean to say that this is a proper movie. Yeah. I think that the problem is is that with a lot of times horror films, they're not viewed as quote unquote proper movies. Yeah. They're viewed as sort of like a, a, a just piece of amusement. 
Whereas Candyman is actually quite clever. It's clever. It's got some interesting themes. Uh, it's got good acting. It is a proper film. But the weird thing is, is it doesn't seem like a film from the 90s to me. It seems like an 80s film. Is really? That... Well, I suppose it's 92, so it's still got some of those 80s trappings. Yeah, so for some reason, I was watching it, and I was like, oh my god, this feels like, you know, denim jackets are being worn. Does it feel kind of like, it feels, I mean, it's, it's maybe, it's a little bit like when we were watching uh, License to Kill, and you're kind of like, this level of pastel colors is only something that could have been popular <laughs> from, like, 89 to 90. Like, it's like, yeah. the film, like, exists in the <laughs> perfect moment in time, where yeah. none of this would have worked out of any, outside of that two or three year period. Yeah, and so it was probably filmed in 91, we'll say, right? Yeah. So, so we're looking at, like, yeah, between 88 and 91. It's definitely that point where the <laughs> 80s meets the 90s. A hundred percent, Nirvana dude. hasn't happened yet, you know? Exactly. We're, we're waiting it's... for the plaid revolution to start. That's right, that's right. It's still, like, jean jackets and you know, curly, poofy hairs, and yeah. I Interestingly don't know. enough, though, do you know uh, the year this came, the year after this came out? You, so the year before this came out, do you know what won Best Picture? The year before this came out, so in '91. Yeah. Uh, no, I don't. Would have been Silence of the Lambs. Would it have been okay? I think that's right. Silence of the Lambs won '91. Yeah, Somewhere I'm pretty sure that's. Then. I'm pretty sure that's true. And then '92 uh, was Dances with Wolves, right? Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Because I, I think Night Dances with Wolves is 1990. Oh, 1990. Okay. Yeah, so I'm pretty sure Silence of Lambs is 91. Okay. And then Unforgiven's 92. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so, yeah. So, I mean, like, so I think, like, there was an element, there, there was a kind of interest in this kind of um, highbrow horror concept, you know? Sure. And this isn't a slasher film. Like, you know, can, and I, it's maybe one of the reasons why Candyman hasn't become, like, Jason or Freddy Krueger. He hasn't become like almost a comical joke mm. of himself at this point. Like people don't, but really... they have made a shitload of like terrible sequels. But people don't really dress up as Candyman for Halloween, do they? It's because people are racist, Kier. Well, black people could dress up as Candyman for Halloween if they wanted to. The, and they should, god damn it, because he's a fucking badass. Oh, by the way, too, uh, it was fun too because in Scream they have a reference to Candyman. Do they? Yeah, because Matthew Lillard says, uh, what, since you branded him the oh, Candyman? Yeah. Oh, that's right. That's right. <laughs> Which is actually, it's interesting because I was reading about this, and apparently they actually went to the NAACP to um, ask if they thought that there was going to be, if they, if they had any problems with the script, because they were kind of like, well... Is is what we're doing? Would you consider what we're doing racist here? Do we, do you have a problem with it? And the NAACP mm. kind of said like, no, nah, I mean, why can't like Hannibal Lecter be black? It's like why why can't any of these people be black? Like why why right. why, why can't you have like a black evil like killer person? And yeah, um, yeah. like the friend and I, I watching it, it seems very obvious. The friend is made black because they wanted the one middle class kind of like non kind of poor black stereotype in there they're like look you know we're not saying all black people are poor you right know, exactly um but I, actually the thing that i really liked is I, I i like the detail of how she's at this project and everything looks fucking crumbling and shitty and they've just been in the uh the apartment of the murdered woman um and they come out and there's the woman who's the nurse who's got like the big dog and uh they go inside and her apartment is just 
so well organized and so well put together. And it's this interesting moment of you cross mm. from this sort of facade of this crumbling infrastructure and how, and it just looking horrible. And this just looks like it's full of crack dens. And then you go in and you see like, there's this woman who's just trying to lead this normal life in there, which is, right. it's, which is really fascinating because that's true across the world in, uh, you know, favelas or council estates or any of these places. There's yeah, people tenements. who just live yep. there. And like we, yeah, yeah. And it's easy to forget that sometimes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I think the film actually does a really nice job of being sensitive and paying attention to sensitive themes, which is funny to see because it was in a time where like, you know, it's 2017 right now and, and uh well this film's coming out people, around the time of the rodney king you know riots yeah yeah i mean and people are walking on eggshells now to make sure that they don't offend anybody and this film almost seems like it was able to to be respectful of various different identities while also making certain social commentaries and also providing a really good kind of creepy psychological and and just gory gory horror film all at the same time without really trying to be uh to score any points you know but it's it's interesting, too, because this film actually has a really good pedigree behind it as well, because, you know, you've got uh, this is based off a short story by Clive Barker, who's obviously a very well-respected writer. Um, interestingly enough, the short story is set in Liverpool. It's not set, set yeah, in yeah, Chicago. Yeah, I heard that. So, I mean, I, 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 I wonder if the racial element is quite as strong in the original short story as it is in this one, because, of course, um, I mean, obviously there's plenty of black people in Liverpool, but I imagine if it's a council estate in Liverpool, it wouldn't necessarily be an entirely black uh, community. Whereas like yeah. the idea with this is this very much a racial divide in this, this is the idea right. very much of there's the whites and the blacks living in these two. Cause in, in the short story, the whole point is that the candy man isn't real. It's just a myth because once you erase the racial element, then your whole point goes away. Care. See victory. Stop. Clive, fuck you. Fuck, Clive, fuck you. Stop Cl- trying to Clive Barker's on my side. Fuck you, man. Stop trying to, <laughs> stop trying to fuck with no, this. No. Okay. I'm kidding. Yeah, no, I did find that interesting. I want, I, I, I just found this out. 20 minutes before we got on to record the podcast, I'd be curious to see what the short story says or how it develops I, it and I, how I, different Clyde it is. Clyde is one of those people I keep meaning to read more of because I haven't really read much of it. I, I'm not like the world's biggest fan of Hellraiser either. So it's um, – it's, yeah. it's No, it's funny. Hellraiser is one of those people that that – he gets a lot of Halloween attention. Oh yeah, well, because he's he, he's very Halloweeny. You know, it's like it's it's. What's like, his name? Needleface. Like, Candyman is that just wears a big coat and has a hook. Like he's not like, it's he's he's not got like a hockey mask on or a burnt face or anything like that. He's just got a hook. So I, I guess yeah, it's you could do something with like bees. You could have like bees all over you and shit. <laughs> like that was like when you were watching that, by the way, too. Like because you're thinking that like this is pre CGI, so you're sitting there going like those fuckers have bees all over them. Like, <laughs> that must have been a nightmare. I, I, I do have a question though. I don't. Did they ever explain? I, I can't remember. What's the deal with the bees? Um, no, yeah, that was part of the murder thing because they, they, they I like, don't remember. covered in, in bees. I'm pretty sure. Like I think they like uh, or uh, I can't remember how the murder happened, but um, the original murder. Yeah, in like I'm pretty 1800s. sure bees were involved in the murder. I think was kind of okay. why, why why though weirdly they never actually explain why he's called Candyman. Yeah, I never understood that. I will say this though: the bees part was the scariest bit for me as a kid i remember this movie scared the shit out of me as a child it wasn't as scary watching it this time um it's still creepy as fuck but you know it it, i remember as a kid i was absolutely terrified and for some reason this idea of like bees coming out of someone's mouth and climbing all over them and creeps me maybe that's why whenever i watch beekeepers now i have a sort of like unconscious 
negative reaction. Maybe I'm reminded of Candyman and how he terrorized me as a ten year old. Uh, what did you think of the Philip Glass score? Um, I mean, I I I didn't really pay attention to it uh, in a way that maybe I should have. Is it something that I should have paid attention? Yeah, to? Yeah, I really like I, I like the Philip Glass score. It's got this kind of weird kind of throwback vibe to it. It's like uh, I, I I don't know. I, I think I think to me it's one of the big characteristics of the film. It's like I think of like the Philip Glass score going over these big sort of aerial shots of Chicago. Um, hmm. So it's it's um, and it's it's interesting because I think it. I think when I started to watch this, I remember, I very distinctly remember the first time trying to watch this film and kind of expecting this kind of, um, this kind of, some kind of silly horror film and actually being like really surprised how much this film sets out as this really distinct voice and this distinct, um, Mm. like, uh, visual style. And I mean, it's funny because there's, 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 there's elements to do it. Like when she's in like her apartment, you're kind of like, oh, that doesn't look like a set at all. That that <laughs> aerial shot of Chicago in the background, that certainly doesn't look like a giant blow up picture that you put there at <laughs> all. No. Um, but at the same time, you know, I can make fun of that. But when they're actually at Cabrini Green, that place feels authentic. That place feels real and scary. Well, I mean, it wouldn't be too difficult to film in a place like well, that. It's, actually, know, was it... it's a real place. Yeah, Cabrini okay. Green was it is a real place in... in Chicago, and they filmed there. And they did. I mean, there you go. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that makes sense. And, and I think that's, that's what's interesting about it, because I think this film ends up drawing a lot of really fascinating elements out of the realistic world horror. Like the idea that this, this idea of these places that, we are, you know, uh, people of a certain race, social structure are scared to, you know, walk into venture into, you know, yeah. because, you know, they are in many ways the remnants of shameful elements of our history. You know, I mean, mm. and, you know, it, it's interesting, this idea that, um, you know, this great horror was done to a black person and then out of that is just this unending air of misery and horror and destruction and then ultimately in some kind of a way there's some kind of turnaround where this sort of horror is visited black on a white woman who is the kind of who's who's essentially the uh the cause of this because he was wronged in the myth by a oh you know he's wronged by white people, obviously, um, and it's for the fa- the crime of having been with a white woman, um, and it's created mm. and it, it creates its own sort of mythology and mythical figure out of that. And and I think there's something really interesting in this. I, I mean, I, I'm a big fan of uh, the Richard Matheson book I Am Legend. Have you read it? Never read the book. Um, it's totally different from the movie. Ignore the movie. Uh, the, oh, okay. But the idea in the book is that you have this character who's essentially living in this post-apocalyptic world that's entirely inhabited by vampires. And during the day, he goes around trying to kill as many of these vampires as possible. He, like, goes into their hideouts and kind of stabs them and kills them. Um, And um, he eventually gets captured by them, um, and he realizes that actually... And he's put on trial for murder, and he realizes that actually Mm. they've become the the population of the world now this is this is who hmm. runs the world he is the weird creature of myth that he's become mm. the vampire he's the weird thing that stalks around you know and and, and murders them in their sleep you know and it's that interesting reversal of the idea of 
uh, monsters and mythology. And that's what I think is interesting about this is the idea of, you know, Dude, the, the film misses that entire yes. theme completely. Oh, yeah, of course. Entirely. <laughs> of course. That's a really interesting uh, that's a really interesting motif. There I, is actually... That makes me angry. <laughs> there is actually an alternative ending, which was the original ending, which does actually touch on that. So it does okay. have an element that touches on it. It doesn't really explore it that much, but it was there at least. But okay. the interesting thing here, I think... I mean, Candyman was one of those films that I, I, I watched and I was almost like, I wish I was still in university and I could just write a paper on this film. Because like, mm. it's almost like my thoughts on it are so kind of scattered right now. But it's like I feel like if I sat down, studied it, I could really come out with like a really fucking great paper on this movie. That's how I feel. I feel like there there are so many rich themes like we talked about, the socioeconomic themes, the racial themes, gender themes, um, the historical legacy of slavery, um, when I, I, issues I love... of ghettoization and redlining and, and sort of like these ideas uh, of these sort of uh, council estate housings or, or – uh, project housings, right? Um, there, there are lots of interesting interweaving themes that we could explore and we could talk about. It's almost too rich. And I kind of agree with you. I almost feel like I want to watch it again because I still also do think there's something interesting, even though we don't have to get into it again. I do think there's something interesting about this idea of her embodying or becoming the myth. Now, I don't know if that doesn't mean that Candyman ever existed or if he did exist. I don't really Candyman care right fucking now. fucking existed, okay? Just stop with this shit. I don't care, but I do think there's something interesting about her becoming it and kind of performing yeah. it. And in her performing of it, she makes it real. Yeah. And I think there's something interesting about that that idea of performativity that's in there. Um, it's kind of yeah. I, I it's also got a lot I of love richness. this idea though too though of you take this very stereotypical idea of the kind of hot blonde sort of lead, you know, usually you know traditionally kind of virginal you know, uh, right. character and you make her this, uh, intelligent student who's very proactive in terms of what actually happens. This doesn't, things aren't simply reacted upon her. She's proactive in everything she does. You know, it's almost like she's a detective. Yeah. I mean, your silence of the lambs reference is kind of interesting because like Clarice, she's actually out investigating, and, and but she's not, she's not a detective. She's a student. She's a researcher. But it feels like she's – and I think actually the thing that's really interesting is I feel like the film is trying to give all of the characters a certain dimension to them at all times. And I feel like she mm. feels – you know, as as a protagonist, she's watchable, she's flawed, and she's kind of – you know, she's interesting. You know, she's mm. – she you, you keep with her um, despite sort of – stupid things she does or naive things she does because in many ways she works great as an audience surrogate because we are terrified going into this place you know we right. are and we are equally as kind of dumb and uncertain about what the right thing to say or the right thing to do is you know but i like that she's not i like that at all times she's an intelligent person you know mm. she doesn't do things out of um stupidity to allow the plot to happen um her things come from a very well-earned and intelligent naivety a lot of the time but i mean mm. it's like it's like things like when like the little kid says to her don't go into the fucking bathroom 
Um, and she goes in there, and of course that's where she encounters the she gang attacked. member. And that's a really interesting idea too. And this idea that this gang that this gang leader has appropriated the name of Candyman in order to spread fear because it's a name that already exists. So therefore, by him appropriating the, it's like again the myth kind of lives on through this sort of perpetuation of the violence. And if you think about say yeah. you know mythological concepts like you know uh, I don't know the the New Jersey Devil or stuff like that, they're things that are perpetuated through time through people appropriating and changing those stories and making them you know sort of fit within the modern context you know Mm. there's something really fascinating about the notion of myth that this film is tapping into and this idea of how it is this ever unstoppable and ever um replicating force hmm yeah yeah i know what you mean this is again i'm i'm gonna repeat myself but it is something that makes me want to kind of think about this more i i like that you say you wish that you could write a paper about this because it does and especially the more we're talking about it the more you're focusing on this idea of myth as somebody who is interested in mythology and who has paid a lot of attention to traditional societies or archaic religious societies and and that enjoys anthropology there is something quite fascinating about the relation of mythology, which is, again, why I think it would be something that's so interesting to kind of think about uh, uh, in terms of, like, the sequels. And how do the sequels handle I've, I've actually never seen any of the sequels, to be honest. See, I saw the second one. What is it called? Uh, like Farewell to the Flesh. Damned, Farewell to the Flesh, yeah. I saw that one, um, and I think I actually saw that one before I saw the original. Yeah. Because I was a little bit older and I so I think I was at an age where maybe I was like a young teenager. It probably came out in like what the mid nineties or mid to late nineties. Probably, like, probably like, came out a couple of years after that. That's... Yeah, ninety five, ninety seven, somewhere in there. So it's probably one of those films that what I used to do with my buddies is we would buy a PG thirteen food film or something like that and we'd go into the rated R film. It was probably one of those ones. Um but I saw that one before I saw the original Candyman. And of course so... you know you know do you know who directed Candyman too? No, who? Bill Condon who uh, went on to direct um, uh, Gods and Monsters and Kinsey and yeah. uh, recently directed Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> this is a perfect uh, primer for a Disney film. <laughs> exactly. Uh, Candyman 2. You know, uh, you know pe- pe- that's, what, that's what happened. Disney watched Candyman 2 said, we need that man to direct Beauty and the Beast. That's right. That is absolutely um, right. But, I mean, I suppose that's, that's the thing too is because you think about it too and it's fascinating that this film is based off of uh, a short story from England because mm. it so draws on a very specific element of the American myth you know the I mean because also you know it's it's hard not to look at what happened to Candyman as this this sort of wronged figure of vengeance um, hmm. Think of Emmett Till. You think of the um, the right. legacy of kind of um, wronged black figures in American history, um, and and I mean, it's interesting. Again, it's 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 tapping into a kind of raw nerve that kind of still is really perpetuated in the zeitgeist, even still to this day. Oh yeah, I mean, it's it's never going to go away. I think it's interesting that if we make films that try to ignore it or that handle it in a way that but even so, I think it's like a case of like, though, I think it it perpet- it comes out in a stronger way at certain time periods. And you would mm. you could say in the last couple of years has been one of those time periods, much in the way that I think 
um, the early 90s with, say, Rodney King and the L.A. riots was and uh, the O.J. Simpson trial was Mm. one of those time periods. Yeah, I'd be really curious to see or to hear some behind the scenes production stuff to talk about the development of this script. What were they thinking? What were the themes that they were interested in exploring? Why? What was going on precisely in the United States when they were doing this to kind of look at it? Um, What's, it's interesting I, I'm always too, interested. I feel like they were clearly I feel like with Scream. Oh, sorry. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. They were clearly aware of how, you know, potentially incendiary the ideas were in the film because obviously they approached the NAACP to talk to them about it. Sure. Um, and Virginia Madison was quoted as saying, um, I was, and I am now worried about how people will respond. I don't think Spike Lee will like this film. You know? Interesting. Did Spike Lee ever respond? I, no idea. Um, you know, I have no idea if Spike Lee ever was quoted about saying anything about Candyman. but you know, I, I you know, I, I think, I mean, I, I suppose you could come up with some kind of way that this film is an appropriation of the black struggle ultimately to uh, in the service of the horrors that a white woman has to face or something like that. I'm sure you could come up with a reading where you decided this film was racist, but I, I, I don't think there's, that's what this film is about. You know, it's it's mm. um, and I think it's. It's interesting because I, I think in many ways, uh, you know, when you talk about, say, the idea of a, a, a black man as the um, sort of horror figure, the Freddy Krueger, the Hannibal Lecter. I mean, it's interesting. It's a little bit like, you know, talking about, say, something like Gone Girl and saying, why can't a woman just be a psychopath? Why why, why does it have to be the film doesn't the film? Why, why does it have to be that without the film being like trying to say this about women? The film is not. Gone Girl is not trying to make a point of saying women are fucking crazy and evil. It's saying this woman is fucking crazy and evil in the same way that <laughs> the film is not saying all black people are violent, you know, killers. It's saying this black person is a violent, crazy killer. And actually, the interesting thing is um, when I was reading an interview with um, Toby Todd, um, the uh, the guy who plays Candyman, it's interesting um, Sorry, Tony Todd, not Toby Todd. Uh, it's interesting because what he likens it to, and I actually think this is quite a good one, is actually more a Phantom of the Opera type character, a sort of mm. a, 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 someone who has some sort of romantic yearning in their heart that has been destroyed mm. by uh, the cruelty of the world and so takes vengeance, you know, in response well, to Well, and that. a lot of his his monologues to Virginia Madsen's character are much about that. Join me in the afterlife. Yeah, there's a sensual element like, to it. Yeah, there is very sensual. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is, I, I can see that. I actually really like that idea. It is a sort of Phantom of the Opera type of this person is maligned. They can no longer exist. They're disfigured. They're pushed to the periphery of society or to the world. And they're just seeking some sort of recompense. They're seeking to somehow find that connection again. And the way that he does it is obviously in a, was an interesting sadistic way, but um, but there is still a sensuality there. I actually think the thing that's quite clever about how they utilize him in this film is I actually think he's done very sparingly. You don't really see him for an awful lot of the first part of the film. They really build up the idea of Candyman as this off-screen figure. And he doesn't come in till like 30, 35 minutes in. It feels, is, it, is it even... 
that soon. Well, I mean, it felt more the like... movies, the movies, the movies only like an hour and twenty minutes. Yeah, that's so, a good I mean, point. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it might be, it might be forty-five minutes in. But I mean, it's it's a good thirty to forty minutes in. And he's we'll still see. incredibly sparingly used in it. I mean, it, it, he he really he's he's got like five scenes. Yeah. <laughs> And they all work really, really well. Like that whole mm. bit where she's strapped to the bed and he suddenly appears kind of floating above her is so kind of mm. creepy and weird. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I really do think it's I, I, I don't know. I, I just think there's so much kind of like really sort of genius things going on in this. And it's interesting because uh, Bernard Rose, the uh, director of it, has essentially like he's like a, a classics geek like he he loves tolstoy he's made like five tolstoy adaptations and he loves <laughs> beethoven like and made a movie about beethoven after this like he makes Candyman. two years later goes and makes a movie about beethoven so he's not like a horror dir- i mean he's actually made a whole bunch of horror films since then but there's this weird thing where essentially his entire career is made of him making tolstoy adaptations and then going and making some low budget horror film Hmm. That's funny. And I'm actually surprised too. What's the guy's name? Tony Todd? Tony Todd, yeah. I'm surprised that he hasn't done like something it, it, like I've know him as the Candyman guy. But I, he's actually he's actually again, he's really good in this. I'm going to be really re- I'm going to do something really really embarrassing right now as is possibly yeah. going to make me look really racist. So, you know, please forgive me. I used to get him mixed up a lot with Dennis Habsburg. <laughs> I, yeah i can see I, that. I i so it's like i thought i'd seen him in things and then it turned out it was dennis Haysbert. i yeah which like if you look at the two of them next to each other they look nothing alike and i think it's just because they've got really big uh like a really big build and a very very right. deep voice but for some reason i got them mixed up a lot so you thought that he was pedro serrano in major league is what you're saying no i didn't and then, I, didn't, I didn't go that I, far um, and then the all the all state guy but like no but like <laughs> dennis haysbert would show up every so often in these kind of small parts like he was in um he's in uh like jarhead and a couple of other things and i would think it was tony todd mm. for some reason i, I don't know i, I think it's because it's just very there were uh guys with very big builds uh with very deep voices and yes they're both black um but um <laughs> yeah um so that's, that's but he, I mean he's he's a really good actor. Yeah, uh, at I, least actually, in, in the know, bits that I've seen. He's so. um I mean I think he was one of these guys who did get a little bit ghettoized into then doing all of these kind of like um horror roles afterwards, you know, and I think he's yeah, I think he's one of these guys who's sort of big on convention circuits and stuff like that. And uh, he pot like he's oh, you, a, you don't mean you don't mean ghettoized in that he was like put into like stereotypical sort of like black ghetto no, no, roles. No, but I mean, you mean like that he was he was actually sequestered and kind in of like you are going to be. Uh, I mean, because the yeah. other the other thing that he's known for is he was like the uh, Undertaker in the Final Destination franchise. He popped up in a bunch of those, and he was like the all knowing kind of Undertaker who said you know would give the sort of. Um, uh, exposition about the concept of death being uh, this unstoppable yeah, force. And I always feel whenever I see him pop up in those roles, it makes me feel like it's just a cameo playing off yeah. of his character uh, from Candy. Yeah, no, definitely. And that's the thing. That's what that's what a lot of his career is. He's in The Rock. Huh. Okay. Which The Rock Who has got he? a very odd, eclectic cast to it. So it's, uh, yeah, it, it makes oh, fuck, sense. Fuck, I don't even remember that. <laughs> uh, yeah, he's one of um, he's one of the sort of uh, guys who's um, just under Ed Harris, who then they, you know, when like there's that bit where all of his kind of, um, uh, well, you know, I, I never know military ranks, but the guys who are just under 
Ed Harris, they all kind of rebel against him because he doesn't actually want to shoot the missiles. And mm-hmm. uh, then they go like, fuck you, Ed Harris. We're going to do it anyway. And he's one of those guys. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. Because, you know, because I remember The Rock like the back of my hand because The Rock is a fucking amazing movie. <laughs> um, but yeah, and then... Um, well, and The Rock was also responsible for us going to war with Iraq. So, I mean, you know, we got we to gotta give The Rock its proper due. How dare you? Uh, Did you not ever hear that? You no, know, I didn't hear this. Was this? So apparently some of the secret military information that was passed on to uh, secret op agents in – or um, I'm sorry, uh, like, like secret service agents in the UK and in the States, the person who described – the the chemical weapons that he supposedly saw in Iraq were he was describing the actual the the weapon that you get in the rock you know like the glass yeah, balls yeah. that are filled with like the gl- the green that are like sequentially hung yeah, together yeah. and they're in like this cylindrical thing yeah. that's where this person got that information from they got the information from the rock and when he's describing it to american or british military personnel to try to like be a whistleblower he's basically just describing something he saw in the movie the rock which is why a lot of the information that we got that led us to war was obviously false that's not the rock's <laughs> fault though no, it's not the Rock's fault. It's this dude's fault. He's also apparently the pretty vo- fucking he's funny. also apparently the voice of the Fallen in Transformers: Revenge of the Fallen. So Michael Bay clearly likes him. Ah, uh, there you go, there you go. Yeah, and Michael Bay started, you know. Michael Bay. I'm just gonna say Fuck again, you. Michael Fuck Bay you, Michael assembles Bay. some of the most fascinating casts. <laughs> he really does. Yeah, I know, I know. you love. Him, I, he does. Bay. Um, he does a lot of uh, video game voicing, I think, as well, because he's obviously he's got a very distinctive voice. He's got a great voice. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Um, but yeah, no. And then Bernard Rose, uh, basically I was kind of fascinated. I went down this weird hole of kind of just like looking up all of his movies in like trailer forms. Cause the guy's like fairly prolific at uh, these days. He seems to like put out almost a movie a year. Um, but like he's done like five Tolstoy adaptations and he was one of the, he's a sort of early adopter of um, digital video. So he made this mm. film is the only other film of his that I've ever seen called Ivan's ecstasy, um, which uh, stars uh, Danny Houston as this kind of, and it's, it's the, uh, it's this adaptation of the novella, the death of Ivan. I can't say his last name. I'm sure my mother who's when she's listening to the podcast will tell me off cause she'll know exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about. Cause she gets on me all the time. Cause I don't read the fucking Russians. Um, but anyway, it's a, uh, yeah, but it's it's like it's all shot in like digital video and um, mm. is an adaptation that has Danny Houston as this sort of modern Hollywood, um, uh, like I think he's like an agent. I can't remember if he's an agent or a producer, but he's some he's one of these guys just going around like doing lots of coke and uh, killing himself slowly in Hollywood. <laughs> um, and it's all shot in like really really shitty looking digital video, like back when like. Digital look like, you know, fucking horrible home movie footage. <laughs> right, um, right. And then he's he's made a he, he made this I, uh, the most prominent thing that he's made in the last uh, in, in the 2000s was this um, adaptation of the book Mr. Nice starring Reese Ifans about this guy who was this huge um, weed um Oh yeah, runner. Um, I remember that one. Yeah, yeah I didn't I, see it, but I remember. I remember the trailer. Yeah, or whatever which it. I didn't. I, I watched about thirty minutes of and got kind of bored of. Um, I've, mm. I've, you know, he did this uh, lavish adaptation of Anna Karenina that got kind of dumped. 
Um, he, he's, he's had a weird career. Um, hmm. but yeah, but of late, like he's, he's got like, uh, Boxing Day, which is a again another Toy Story adaptation. Oh, yeah. uh, Two Jacks, yeah. which is a Toy Story adaptation. Uh, the Devil's Violinist, which I think might I think that might also be a Toy Story adaptation. I don't know. Uh, and then the uh, he's got a film called Sex Tape, which is literally about a couple. Well, but it's spelled S X underscore tape, which is about a couple like it's like a found footage movie about a couple who go to shoot a sex tape in a hospital and then like weird spooky shit happens. And then he did yeah. also a modern adaptation of Frankenstein, um, where Danny Houston is Dr. Frankenstein. He's, he's, he seems to be obsessed with Danny Houston as well. I haven't even heard of most of those movies. Yeah. I've, I've not heard of most of these movies, but I got in this weird hole. Where I just started watching all of these trailers. Cause I was kind of fascinated by it. Cause I'm like, he keeps putting out movies and I'm part of none of them. And they're all like these <laughs> high minded, like Tolstoy adaptations or adaptions of classics, either that or like shit, like a found footage movie about couples fucking it's, it's a, it's, I, I, I can't get a handle on who this guy is. He's also <laughs> apparently, like I said, he's also apparently obsessed with Beethoven because not only did he make a movie about Beethoven's, starring Gary Oldman called Immortal Beloved, but he also made a film that's named after a Beethoven um, sonata, uh, the the, Kruz, uh, the Kruzer sonata. I can't, hmm. as has been established, I can't pronounce things. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, he's a weird guy. Um, yeah. Or for all I know, he's a very normal, nice guy. He just has, a, he, he knows what he likes and he just, he keeps on theme with that. Well, we thank him for bringing us Candyman. Because, again, another excellent film. Candyman is absolutely fucking great. I think it's... I I would even go as far as to say that I think I might include Candyman in, like, my favorite horror films of all time. Wow. Yeah. I mean, Hmm. I... It was interesting because I watched it three weeks ago and I was like... I just really want to talk to Austin about this film because it was because it was just like I said, I just got was sort of overcome by just the amount of just rich thematic concepts within it. And so I'm kind of like it's frustrating sometimes when you watch a film and you're kind of like there's so much really fascinating shit in this. I have nobody to talk to about it right now. (laughs) Right. I know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so that was our Halloween special. Uh, yeah, that was actually that was a really really good double bill. Like I, yeah, I really enjoyed that. Yeah, it's not often that when we do a double bill that we both love both of the movies. Oh yeah. So Austin, we are going to watch a film by a female director, Catherine Bigelow. Nope. Uh, she's an actress. She's only directed one film ever. Oh, wow. Oh. And it's a sports movie. A sports? Oh. And it's set in Texas. Okay. Set in Texas. Do you have any idea what this film is? Varsity Blues. Nope. It's the film Whip It. What the fuck? I don't Whip even know what it that is, is a film where Ellen Page is a small town girl who doesn't want to live in small town Texas anymore and goes to the bright lights of Austin where she discovers roller derby. <laughs> nice. Uh, nice. This film's got like I, this film is like again it's it's a little bit one of those films I think is just charm personified. And it's going to be just like, it's one of those films that I, I've definitely, I've shown at least like two or three people and just been like, you know, 
you would love this movie. Like it's, it's one of those ones I definitely feel is like a sharing experience. Like not enough people have seen it. So Austin, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you the favor of sharing whip it with you. Well, thank you. I appreciate that care. I'm looking forward to seeing it. I do like Ellen page. So perfect. Uh, In the meantime, guys, if you are not subscribed to us on iTunes, please do. Um, Please uh, feel free to write us a review. It would be useful. Um, And uh, in the meantime, you can check out any of my stuff at uh, kirsiwit.com. I've been reposting some old photos on Instagram recently. I've got a couple of shoots planned that coming up, so there should be some new material going online soon. So, yeah, that'll be exciting for everybody. Nice. And if you want, you can hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. Other than that, I'm cutting out my social media presence of late. So uh, don't really follow me on Instagram. It won't do any good. And you could friend me on Facebook if you want, but I'm not really paying attention to Facebook either. So hit me up on Twitter. I've, I've literally depoliticized myself on Facebook in every way. And my life is actually much happier for it. Uh, I know. It's, it's, you got to cut that, cut it out, man. It's like, the outrage machine is too much for me to handle I know. these days. I feel like a lot less stressful. I mean, I had the one exception yesterday when i finally kind of went off on one about the whole kevin spacey thing because i was like thank fuck somebody finally said something about it because i've been literally hearing stories about this asshole for a decade and i've never Same. i've yeah. never felt justified in being able to say it out loud you know in, in a sort of public sphere like this because you know ultimately these aren't experiences that happened to me and it felt like it's unfair for me to appropriate other people's stories and start spreading rumors when they weren't things that happened directly to me so i'm just glad somebody has had the courage to come forward and finally point out what this guy has been doing for a very long time now. Yeah, and see, the thing, too, is a lot of people don't know who Anthony Rapp is, but Anthony Rapp actually played a really important part in my high school years because he was the lead mark in Rent on Broadway originally. And also in that horrible Chris Columbus film. Right, exactly. Um, and uh, I mean, most of the original cast was in in the film. Not all, but a, a lot, a large majority of them were. And uh, Rent was a huge musical for me when I was in high school. So, uh, but you're also when forgetting I heard his he... really, really significant role as the douchebag guy in Road, Road Trip? Trip, who tries to undermine <laughs> Breckenmeyer. Yeah. That's right. He was in Road Trip, and he actually did a one man play that I got to see at the Edinburgh Fringe. That was all. I think it was called. Oh, God, what was it called? I can't remember, but it's named after one of the songs from Rent. Yeah. So it could have I, – I don't remember which one it was. But anyway, uh, he's a brilliant actor, and uh, to hear that he came out and he had that experience to me is uh, – you know, it's for someone that, that, that meant a lot to me, it was kind of – it it just kind of hurt me a little bit more too just because even though i don't know anybody that i that i know of at least firsthand even though i've heard stories from people like that are like secondhand well, that's third the thing. hand that's accounts. the crazy thing about it is we've all heard stories if you've if you've been yeah. around people in the british film industry you've heard stories about kevin spacey yeah. because he's exactly. he's notorious yeah so um but anyway yeah i understand man so i have two separated myself a little bit from the interwebs and if you are out there i recommend that you cut yourself down just a little bit just a day a week off just get off that facebook and go outside and meditate in nature and shit and then watch movies yeah and then go watch whip it because it's (laughs) awesome